I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. I'm speaking today with my colleague and really good friend, Shelley Tekielski. Shelley's a mindfulness teacher, philanthropist, grassroots organizer, and an author. Shelley mm-hmm. focuses much of her time supporting the underserved communities, community organizations, nonprofits, and schools. She's deeply involved in offering trauma informed healing practices to communities affected by gun violence and mass shootings leading retreats for survivors and victims' families, representing Parkland, Pittsburgh, Las Vegas, Aurora, Columbine, and more in that very, very sad long list. In March of 2020, Shelley created the Pandemic of Love, a mutual aid organization intended to help those adversely affected by the coronavirus pandemic in her local community in Florida, which to date has grown monumentally. Right now, Pandemic of Love enlists over 400 full-time volunteers with 47,000 matches between people in need and patrons and over $6.3 million in transactions. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Shelley. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Well, it's really great fun. So uh, how are you? What's happening uh, in your day-to-day life? Uh, My days seem to be blending into each other. So it doesn't seem like it's day to day at this point. It just seems like mm-hmm. one long continuous day. However, um, it's all filled, it seems with, um, I'm trying to fill it with as many good statistics as possible, with happy stories, with stories of um, just heartfelt connection and um, empathy and compassion and just uh, a restoration of faith in humanity. Now I'm trying to remember. We met through Amishi, right? Through Amishi Ja. 
we formally met through Mishi Jai. Yeah, I, I, I knew you prior to um, meeting you through Dr. Ja from University of Miami, uh, where I um, sit on the You Mindfulness board uh, with her and Scott Rogers. And um, I believe that we met actually in like, I think we met in New York first at, a, at the Wisdom Conference at Mindfulness in America. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I had uh, been tapped to lead a self-care for activists uh, workshop at the Women's Convention in Detroit in November of 2017. And the Mindfulness in America Summit, the first one happened, I think, like a month earlier. And I really wanted to get your feedback. So I had asked mm-hmm. immediately uh, to, if, if it would be okay if I forwarded her an email and she forwarded it on to you to get your feedback on my topic, my positioning, which essentially was uh, the premise that Audre Lorde put out there years ago that self-care is an act of resistance. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to visit that with, uh, with women today and, and actually all people in this country, uh, that notion. And so you gave me great feedback. <laughs> I'm so glad I responded. Thank you. <laughs> you did. You, you not only responded, you responded with great words of encouragement. And that really um, started a dialogue back and forth. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then shortly thereafter, you came to Florida in February to speak at the, uh, in Broward. Well, you came to speak at University of Miami and you were kind enough to come to Broward County to speak to the women's March group here and really mm-hmm. speak about self-care, uh, during these times. I remember that dinner. I remember <laughs> getting to know you and your husband, Jason. The joke, really, um, I'll let everyone in on, is that Jason and I were, like, separated at birth. We're, like, an identical (laughs) person. Like, just a question, a simple, obvious question, like, how low do you get your gas tank to go before you fill it with gas? It's like, when we look at Shelly, it's like, really? It's like this alien being. You mean you go down (laughs) to vapors? Really? I'm on fumes before I get, I, I am like, one I noticed that actually. From, from pushing my car to the gas station. Um, and Karen and, and Jason make sure that they're always filled back up when they get down to, uh, get down to like a quarter tank. I don't think the light. Oh, no, is- much, much more than a quarter tank. <laughs> That's too low. I'm just living on the edge, you know? You really? But, you know, one thing that's odd about this time, especially if you're not driving or you're not engaged in that many ordinary activities, is that all the imagery and all the stories and all the metaphors are, like, weird, you know? Yeah. Like, not true. everyone's filling their car with gas these days or driving around or, right. um, you know, so many examples where I, I started talking about one image I often use is, well, it's like you go to the movies with a friend, and then I think, oh, no, we don't do that right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like it's it's such an interesting time. So many things are dissolving. Yeah, yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see what emerges, what the new norm yeah. is. Yeah, I agree. So let's um, 
talk a little bit. I mean, something that has emerged right now, and and not um, waiting for uh, you know a determined future is is this incredible organization you've created called Pandemic of Love. So uh, maybe you can start by explaining what a mutual aid organization is. Sure. So, um, so mutual aid organization um, is really simple in in nature. It's a very simple concept. It's essentially um, just like this closed circuit that uh, a community or an or, you know an organization or um, a company, any type of like a closed circuit a group of of individuals get together and say, okay, we're going to identify what needs certain individuals in this group have, and we're going to identify the individuals that can fill those needs. And traditionally, um, it's not just necessarily a financial need. It could be any type of need, right? Somebody might need uh, babysitting. Somebody might need help with meals. Somebody might need help with welfare checks or transportation. It could really be any type of, of need that a, an individual has. And so you develop this sort of this, this, in, this formalized community of care and community takes care of one another. So it seems like a foreign concept in, you know, in the days that we're living in where a lot of us don't even know who our next door neighbors are, you know, but back in the day, um, so I hear that, you know, if, if a neighbor had a cold, uh, 10 people would show up with, uh, you know, maybe chicken soup. Uh, there was a great concern for one another, this, this tending to each other, and really this, this true development of, um, of, of community and what we would like to think of as community. And that's somewhat dissolved, you know, over the years. Um, so it's this, this return to a formalized structure, but it doesn't necessarily have to be geographically bound. Um, so we use the structure of the mutual, mutual aid concept. Um, I, I thought about it at first when I started to, um, to see the bubbling up on social media of the concerns from my own community here in South Florida, um, people who attend our, our weekly meditation sessions that are single mothers and they're hourly wage workers and, and in hospitality, certainly, you know, in Florida, uh, tourism is like our number one industry here. So a lot of people were very concerned about the fact that things were starting to shut down. And this was around May 14th, uh, March 14th, excuse me. And, um, and I thought, well, what can we do about this? How can we get ahead of this? And so I came up with the concept of just putting two very simple forms online through using Google Forms. And one form was give help and one form was get help. And the idea was that the people and individuals in our community that were of means, they had um, you know, financial, uh, the financial wherewithal to be able to support other individuals could kind of adopt a person in need or a family in need from our community and make sure that those individuals had their essential needs met during this time, because obviously we had no idea how long it was going to last. And to be honest, we really still don't know to a certain extent um, how long it's going to last. So um, I put the forms up. I recorded a very short video on, uh, on Instagram and I didn't think much of it. 
until the next day when I logged back into the forms and I saw that we had over 400 individuals that filled out the form that were in need and over 500 that were individuals uh, willing to be paired up and become patrons. And I, I started to just manually, really tediously manually, one by one, one person at a time, match up people in need with patrons uh, based on what their needs were. And I realized, wow, this is a long process like to do this one by one. I, I'm, I'm not even making a dent. You know, I sat for hours and hours and I immediately thought to call my friend Susan and a friend Julia and I enlisted them. I said, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I know Susan's retired. Julia's a student. And I said, I need your help. And uh, I explained the concept to them. I gave them access to the email accounts. And the three of us started to match around the clock. In the meantime, these forms started getting shared over and over again throughout the country. And we started getting requests from people all over. And patrons from people all over, which was really great. A lot of communities started reaching out as well to say, how can we replicate these forms? And so that's where the concept really just started to evolve. And, and this was happening so quickly. Like when I'm, I'm speaking to you about this, I'm talking about like 72 hours into this, you know, that, that we're already starting to create these like micro communities around the globe, not just in the country, but in places like Portugal and, you know, Canada and, and Australia and Mexico and Ecuador, um, where we started to replicate these forms for them and translate them in some cases. And I realized that if we could connect all of these forms to this like one national or global form, if you will, that we could, um, create almost like this multi-level marketing pyramid, if you really like think about that concept, where we could continue to get, um, you know, go from a 100,000 foot level to 50,000 foot level and down to the 10,000 level and eventually neighborhoods. So a perfect example of that is what's happening with our communities in Los Angeles. If you look at the LA community for Pandemic of Love, LA is huge, as you know. It certainly is not a micro community. There's so many neighborhoods there. But what's happened is that we have so many volunteers that are willing to assist there that we've been able to parcel it out. And we now have a pandemic of love, San Fernando Valley, pandemic of love, uh, Melrose, Hollywood, West Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera. And beyond that now, we have even neighborhoods within those um, areas of Los Angeles uh, that are starting to form. And so it's really amazing because what happens is, is that these forms, which were originally just for financial transactions, once you get more local, it harkens back to what we just mentioned about back in the day when people could actually get to know their neighbors and know what their needs are and actually drop off, you know, food for somebody who's immunocompromised and do welfare checks and you go water somebody's plants and take out their garbage and do whatever it is that, that that needs to get done because now they're local. They're not two states away. Mm. And I want to go back for a moment um, and find out how you got involved in mindfulness and then go on to ask you about how you find mindfulness and activism 
going together because something that really struck me in your description Mm-hmm. is how many people I encounter these days who are activists but are stymied in some way. Yeah. Uh, they they can't go out and uh, act, you know, they can't work. And I mean, humanitarian aid workers who can't get back into the refugee camps and, you know, yeah. people whose funding is disappearing and all kinds of people who are kind of sliding into a sort of helplessness sure. when they're used to so much activity. and um you know, clearly that didn't beset you, or if it ever did, you vanquished it because, uh, you know, you just created this whole thing and, and you're very active in so many ways. And so um, I'm wondering sort of how your mindfulness practice and, and uh, very intense activity go together. Sure. Well, that's a great question. Um, so I'll, I'll answer the first part of your question. You asked how I got into mindfulness. Um. So actually, I, I first learned about uh, meditation formally, uh, actually, as a graduate student at Columbia. Um, I took, I audited a class uh, with Robert Thurman, um, audited it because it wasn't part of what I was studying as a graduate student, but I was certainly paying for 21 credits. So by God, I was going to take 21 credits. Um, and uh, I started to develop a meditation practice at that time uh, in my early 20s. And, um, I, uh, I kind of, you know, I was one of these, uh, eventually became a crisis meditator, uh, where, you know, I, I would kind of start and stop and, uh, develop a practice and then fall away when things were okay and then come back in. Um, and it wasn't until I got, um, I was in the midst of a divorce, um, a, a really, um, I don't even know if there's ever anything such as like a good divorce, but it was a very, um, contentious and just, uh, emotionally draining, uh, process. And I was living together, but apart at the time with my, with my ex-husband and my toddler son at the time, who's now 18, but he was at that time less than two years old. And I had so much stress. I was undergoing so much stress that, um, I just I felt like my body just started to break down. And one morning I woke up and I opened my eyes and I couldn't see. I was actually blind. Um I just I the what I experienced, I describe it as a whiteout. And I later learned that what that was was actually um a rush of white blood cells into my my eyes. And um, that's kind of what I was seeing. And so I couldn't blink it out of the way because it wasn't like floaters. I was later diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, which I still have today and I'm still being treated for today. Um, But uh, it was then, it was after that kind of process of being diagnosed, going to many different doctors, you know, rheumatologists, ophthalmologists, having surgery, being put on medications that just didn't work for me that I finally went to Holistic MD, who looked at me and said, have you ever tried to meditate before? And I was like, oh, are you serious? I mean, really, is that going to be the answer? But but since then, I will say, you know, um, I, I have not missed a day of meditation. So I'm really proud of myself for that. And it's been um, close to 20 years now uh, since that, that, that day that I was asked if I've ever meditated before. Um, and that was sort of how I, I really got back in deeper into the practice. And um, 
And so I learned about mindfulness uh, much later, like I would say several, several years later, when I started to look for ways as an executive in a, in a public uh, company to bring meditation into the company. And I saw all of my employees completely stressed out on a daily basis. At the time, the company that I was with, we were going through a rebranding. So that was in really, really stressful, a national branding effort. And, um, and so I asked my CEO if we could bring meditation in. And he was like, well, it's religious and you know, it, it, I don't think we can get it approved and certainly we're not going to pay for it. And, um, so I was like, no, 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 it's going to be secular, you know? And, and so I started to uh, look online. I, I found, uh, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, uh, and I started to learn more about mindfulness-based stress reduction. And there began really my journey, uh, with MBSR, and the process of becoming a certified uh, mindfulness teacher. And really, it was just for my own edification um, and to um, help my employees uh, build resilience so that they could be more productive. Like that was literally, it's, it's insane for me to say that now because I think about it and I'm like, wow, that really was my goal. Like I'm a completely different person now. I can't even believe it. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, I've always been somebody that was on the activist side, somebody that was really, you know, very politically active, very engaged in, in social justice and pursuits, just things that I believed were, were right versus wrong in the world or think the way that things should be, you know, if it had to do with having clean water or saving whales or, um, you know, making sure that animals weren't abused or, um, things that I just thought were like these inherent, like non-debatable things. Like we should, we, we shouldn't debate about whether or not we want to save the whales. Of course we want to save the whales, you know, like that was just my line of thinking, you know, as early as I can remember, uh, you know, being in middle school and, and going to Greenpeace marches and rallies, um, with a friend of mine that, that really got me into, um, just activism and understanding that one person can actually make a difference. Um, that was a big seed that was planted for me very early on. Um, and the intersection for me of mindfulness and activism really happened, to be honest with you, like in a very big way uh, in the last uh, presidential election in 2016. I, I, it was like this click just happened between the two. And I realized because there were so many other things happening in my personal life at the time in the summer of 2016, I had made the decision to leave, uh, the corporate world after almost 20 years of being in that world. And I, um, decided to become a full-time mindfulness teacher. And I thought when I left that I was going to spend most of my time and make a livelihood by teaching mindfulness in corporations because I thought, well, that's where I came from. I have an authentic story to tell. And, you know, I certainly can connect with individuals in that environment. But um, it's interesting where, where life takes you because in November, as you know, we had that presidential election. And um, after the 
uh, results of that election uh, came forth. And, and I woke up the following morning and I realized um, who our um, president-elect was. I just felt really crushed. I was very, very um, upset. I was sad. I was grieving, fully, fully grieving. And like many people in this country, I thought, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's just hopeless. Like what's going to happen? What's going to be, what's the future going to look like? And, um, I kind of allowed myself to just sit and wallow in that grief for uh, probably a few days. And, and then I thought, right, you know, like, this is not who I am. I need to start thinking about like, what's next? Like, how do I get ahead of this? And that's really, I think the, 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 the thought process for me is like, it's my default mode. My default mode is, you know, and if it almost seems like it's been strengthened over the last several years is rather than kind of wallowing in this, oh, this situation is so awful and it's horrendous. And, you know, whether it's a presidential election outcome, whether it's a, a, a mass shooting or, um, you know, a pandemic, it's, it's like, the immediate default mode for me is what am I going to do about it? This is how I feel. I'm connected with how I'm feeling. I'm feeling distraught. I'm feeling um, out of control. I'm feeling like um, there's um, just this sense of hopelessness. How can I restore hope? How can I gain a sense of control um, or help give others a feeling of control? And let them know that they can be in the driver's seat. Um, and and how do I how do I just help? So that that's that's become like my default mode, and I think that's where the connection is for me between mindfulness and activism. It's just being aware of how I'm feeling as it relates to the outside world, and then that informs my decision to actually like rise up and do something. And I always use the the phrase, which I love, and there's like an, or a movement in New York that took place like several years ago. And I kind of borrow this phrase all the time, which is sit down, rise up. Mm-hmm. And I love that because it's, it's true. It's like, well, what are we doing the inner work for? You know, we're doing the inner work so that we can show up more fully and interact with the outer world. That's really fantastic. So you, as I must, probably much more than I actually, uh, encounter different as- uh, activists in this time. And um, do you agree that there's this kind of despair often? And what do you say? I think there's, there is despair, but I feel like there's more that despair leads to anger. What I see most of the time now in the last several years is a rage. It's an anger and it's a dangerous thing because I think what happens is, is that um, it leads you to, to a place where you don't have clarity. And also, as you know, like anger is just a bad thing to hold on to because it, it can hurt you physically, mentally, in, in so many ways. Um, so what I try to do is, um, and I actually, it's funny because I remember talking to you about this when you came down back in 2017 to speak about the the Women's March, uh, to the Women's March group here in Broward County. And I remember saying to you, like, 
you know, one of the, one of the books that I use in, um, my, uh, self-care for activists or my mindful activism courses or workshops that I teach is the book that you and Bob Thurman co-wrote, which is learning to love your enemies. And just saying that title, when I would say like, this is required reading, you need to buy this book. People would be like, but how can we love our enemies? <laughs> you would think of like one specific individual, of course, um, that has been occupying a lot of people's uh, time right now and, and has been present in our mind and is affecting our lives in a great way. And it was almost like shocking. It was like abhorrent to them that I could even suggest, you know, when all I was doing was actually just telling them which book title to get and to order on Amazon. <laughs> um, so it's it's anger that I'm seeing most often. And I think it's really because, again, it's, it's a matter of um, feeling like, I, somebody is going to take something away from me. Um, I need to, the, the fuel that I need to carry with me is fuel that is um, informed by rage. And so what I'm trying to say to people is no, that is not the fuel that you need because that's going to lead to activism fatigue and burnout. You cannot have any type of resiliency. This is actually, um, you know, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And you're going to burn out. And I've seen so many activists um, who started really strong in 2016, 2017, you know, 2018, who went to every march and every protest and every um, every you know rally to to the Capitol. Um, and and where are they now? You know, they're exhausted. They're they're exhausted. They 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 really aren't as um, active as as they I think would like to be um, because they're disenchanted. And mm -hmm. it's just become too much and overwhelming. So, so it's with that, um, just with that premise and also like going back to the sentiment that, that activism is, um, that, excuse me, self-care is an act of resistance. Um, I can kind of maybe plant that seed with them and get them to, um, understand that there could be a different way for them to be more effective and to actually have more, still have balance in their life and joy. They don't always have to like, you don't have to be angry all the time and outraged mm -hmm. all the time. You sound like you should have written my next book, which would be, would have been really good. <laughs> I wrote it instead. <laughs> and Shelly's in it. Um, yeah. Tell me how you got involved in the gun violence community. Were you just coincidentally living in Parkland and after yeah. the school shooting, did you just want to get, you wanted to help somehow? Well, I didn't initially get involved as a mindfulness teacher. I mean, I, 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 I have many hats that I wear. So um, the first hat that I wear is I'm a mom. And I'm a mom to a high school son. Well, as of tomorrow, no more. He's actually, his last class is tomorrow. But mm. mom to a high schooler. And at the time, he was in 10th grade in Broward County, um, which is the same county that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School's in. And um, I received a text message um, from the school that the school was under lockdown, that there's an active shooter in the area. 
and we knew nothing else. Mm. And my son's school is actually like, it's like built like a fortress because we are in Florida and, you know, a lot of the schools double up as hurricane shelters. Mm. So they build them like really, you know, like vaults basically. And so that he never has reception. So I'm trying to reach him and I can't, I can't reach him and I'm freaking out. And I turn on the TV and I see um, helicopters and they're over Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And we know nothing else at the time. And so we're glued to the TV. Uh, finally, one of the other moms in the school heard from her son and they realized it wasn't in their school, but it was, you know, nearby. And when it just, as it unfolded in like slow motion, you know, we, um, it, it was, I, I was completely distraught. So the first hat I wore that day was like being a mom. The second hat I wore was the fact that I, um, I'm an activist, right? I'm a community organizer. I, um, what happened to be the, the area leader for the Broward Democratic Party at the time for my area. And also I uh, had just literally like a few uh, weeks before, I had just co-chaired the one year anniversary women's march rally called Power to the Polls. And um, so I had all this like experience with um, getting permits and, you know, um, dealing with the police and figuring out traffic stuff, like all of this logistical stuff for rallies and marches. And um, within 24 hours, and I, we still to this day have no idea how we were introduced or who introduced us. I was introduced to Samantha Novick, who you know, and you've come to know mm -hmm. her. Now. And uh, Samantha is an MSD alum. She, her father is the vice mayor of Parkland. Her mother is a teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And um, after we learned of the atrocities that happened that day and the 17 lives um, that were taken from us, we... Um, you know, there were rumblings about uh, a march, that there was going to be a march. And then, uh, it, you know, pretty soon thereafter, the, 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 the name for it, the title of the movement, March for Our Lives, came out. And uh, I started to be in touch with Samantha in, in sort of turning over all this knowledge of, um, of, of what I learned from the women's march that one year anniversary that had happened uh, a few weeks earlier. And it wasn't just with her. I spoke to, to a lot of other, um, you know, organizers as well in the area and um, started to uh, train uh, high school kids around the county as well to um, learn to register voters at the time as well. So that was like the other big push um, that was happening concurrently. And the third hat that I wore um, was a mindfulness teacher hat. Because what I started to see when I was working with all of these high school students, so not just the ones at the epicenter, right, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas kids, um, or the families, you know, of, um, of, of the individuals that were, that were, that were murdered that day, but actually, um, even just high school students that were just like in the county. I mean, I feel like, I feel like people many states away were traumatized by what happened. Cause I just remember like Columbine happening 20 years ago and how traumatic it was, you know? And 
Like I was in Florida and this happened in, you know, Colorado, but the, 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 the collective trauma for our community. And, and I define the word community very loosely here was, was, and is, I mean, cause it's still, it's still happening. Um, a very real thing. And I recognize that the resources, the tools, the, um, a lot of the things that were being offered very early on in terms of, um, assistance, uh, we were, they, we were doing the best we can. I should say it that way, you know, but there weren't a lot of a lot of tools that were available for people. So, so that's when I started to really get involved. I started seeing people like burn out. Um, just, they had, um, exhibited symptoms of, of PTSD. Um, you know, and I, and I just kind of saw the writing on the wall. I knew that, that things were just going to go from bad to worse. And so that's when I started to really, um, start offering, uh, MBSR, uh, classes, workshops, meditations, one-on-one sessions with people. Um, and I started to, um, work with different organizations, applying for grants to bring in other resources into our community. And you, Sharon, were Mm -hmm. resources that, um, we were so fortunate to have come into our community within six months of the shooting um, to hold a half day retreat, which changed a lot of lives. And certainly I think was, um, it set off like the wheels in motion, you know, uh, for a lot of other work that you are going to continue to do in this community. And also that, that we've done together since. It's true. It's a movement actually. I don't even know how that happens, but, um, and when you, uh, back when we were going outside, um, you were leading meditations on the beach, right? And so was that part of that same community, like a lot of people affected by gun violence? And I'm curious about the age range. Yeah. You know, if it's if it's ranging from uh, basically kids to older people. Yeah, no, the, the, the age range is vast. I mean, we get um, people who, kids who are like in, you know, later years of, of middle school, high school aged kids, college students to retirees who are, you know, sometimes snowbirds that come down to, to Florida a few months a year when it's cold, wherever they normally live. Um, the community on the beach actually, um, was just, I would say that's like a cornerstone, you know, that's something that is freely available. It's, um, it's free. Uh, people don't have to pay to come. It's in, it's in the perfect place, which is on the beach. So I always tell people like, what's the worst case scenario? You spent 45 minutes at the beach staring at the ocean. Like, wow, what a terrible way to spend a Sunday morning, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that, um, you know, it's a cornerstone because people know that they can come and just be like a wallflower. Like they could just creep in like and sit in the, on the fringe in the back, do the meditation and then leave. They can linger. They can interact with people. Uh, they can show up early. Uh, it, it's really um, whatever it is that you want it to be at that moment. And uh, and it's great because it's 
um, it, it informs a lot of the other work I do. You know, it, it, it creates connections. Um, and normally what, what I've noticed that people used to do, I mean, I don't know if it's something that people, you know, have done recently because I've, you know, become, um, I guess more, more widely known now in, in the community, in this community as a mindfulness teacher. But, um, I think people used to come and kind of like check me out and say like, okay, let's see if this is, you know, good or if I'll get anything out of it or what kind of a teacher she is or, and I think they used to kind of like come on a Sunday morning and then, uh, and then I would wind up after class uh, people would stay after and say, Hey, you know, I'm from, you know, I'm a teacher at this school or I'm a commissioner from this city or, um, you know, I work for this organization and would you be willing to fill in the blank? So it's mm-hmm. been, been a, a really great way for, for people to consistently have access to meditation, but more importantly to community. And one of the things you've done that, uh, I just found so impressive and, inspiring amidst all the rest is uh, when you were on that panel and helped organize that panel at Wisdom 2.0, um, I guess a little over a year ago in yeah. California. And, and um, uh, panelists were you. And who else was on that panel? Uh, so Fred Guttenberg, whose daughter, Jamie Guttenberg, uh, was shot at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Um, and then Ivy Seamus, who was a teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. She um, actually uh, took a sabbatical this year uh, after she, uh, her last student that was in her class, um, the class that got shot into um, was, uh, had graduated. So she felt comfortable taking, you know, some time off. And um, she had uh, two students that were, that were murdered in her classroom uh, and several that were injured. And one of the students that was in her classroom was Alea Eastman, who was one of the panelists as well. Uh, so it was interesting to hear both of their perspectives of the experience because they were both in the same room, but had two um, different experiences, you know, as a student, and as a teacher. And, um, and then there was um, Adam Alhanti, who uh, was also a student and at Marjorie Selma Douglas, but wasn't in the 1200 building, but um, became one of the uh, most active uh, March for Our Lives uh, students in the movement. Well, one of the uh, incredible moments for me in the panel, which I think about a lot these days, because for so many people right now is a time of great grief, really. You know, I almost feel like collectively, uh, well, there are phases, of course, and everyone's having their own experience, but there was the anxiety and now there's the grief. Yeah. Um, and I remember Fred talking about finding a way to go on, to survive and, and to contribute to the world, to life. And, and he said that every day he looks for meaning. Mm-hmm. He looks for some sense of meaning. And the person who counseled him was Joe Biden. Yeah, which is you know kind of incredible. I remember him looking uh, at David Seamus, who was who was moderating the panel, uh, who had worked in the Obama White House, and and he said, you know, who really really helped me was Joe Biden, which brings me to this moment in your life where uh, the other day you sent me a text and 
and you were talking to somebody and I thought, who in the world is she talking to? I don't, I can't hear or, you know, I can't get the cadence of the, of the voice or something. And all of a sudden I thought, Oh, how did that happen? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, I still don't well, know. You can tell us the story. Cause yeah, I, I, I still don't know what happened. So I was, I was about to hop in the shower. It was Sunday evening and I get a phone call, um, from like a strange number. And I normally don't pick up, like if it would have been Monday through Friday, I wouldn't have picked up because I would have thought it's for sure a telemarketer. But it was a Sunday evening and I thought, yeah, that's weird because telemarketers don't usually call at that time. So I'll pick up. So I answer and I, uh, there's a woman on the other line and she says, um, uh, is this Shelly Tegelski? And I said, yes. And she says, I'm calling from the office of Joe Biden. And I thought, oh, Lord, they're going to hit me up for like a donation. Like, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen here? And uh, I said, oh, OK, that's nice. And she said, um, uh, Joe and Jill would like to to speak to you and thank you for the work you're doing with Pandemic of Love. Would you be willing to speak to them? And I said, uh, yeah, of course, absolutely. And so she said, OK, I'm going to give him your number. And they'll be calling you um, probably within the next, you know, 20 minutes or so. And within five minutes, actually, like before I could even um, run out to the living room and say to Jason, my husband, to say, um, you'll never guess who just who's going to be calling me. The phone rang and I put it on speakerphone um, and to allow Jason to listen to the conversation as well. And, uh, uh, you know, it was so, it was so like interesting just because it was like Shelly. And I said, yeah, he said, this is Joe, like, as if he's like my buddy from my school, you know? And he said, I'm here with my wife, Jill. And we really want to thank you for this remarkable work that you're doing that we've heard about. And, um, interestingly enough, I, 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 I don't really know, you know, um, I, I, how they heard about it. I think I might have an inkling or, or know that it came like through a friend of mine here in the Broward Democratic Party. But um, but it, it was so amazing. I wound up having like a three and a half minute conversation with them um, and sharing some of the work that um, that I do also beyond Pandemic of Love and just making sure that he knew uh, that I appreciate the fact that he's going to be putting himself out there uh, at this time in our, in our country's history and, and in the next election. And, um, and it was just, it was so nice to, to feel um, like the work I'm doing matters. You know, I, it mm -hmm. felt very, um, I don't know if validating is the right word, but I felt very proud. I felt really mm -hmm. so proud that, you know, the vice president and, and possibly the next president of the United States uh, knows about this movement that started five weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Well, the line where I finally realized that's who's calling her was when he said to you, you are the soul of America. Aww. So yeah. it was, it was uh, that moment. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was it was phenomenal. It was really, it was something else. Very cool. 
So now I'm just going to sit back and wait for Michelle to call me. I made sure to tell David. (laughs) (laughs) I call you sometimes. I'm really. (laughs) I sent him a video and I said, the only thing that could top this is a phone call from Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. So to uh, close this conversation, um, I should also say Shelly is going to uh, have a book out and, when that happens, of course, I'll have her back. Maybe I'll have her back before then because she is in my next book, and uh, that would be fun to talk about as well. But uh, to close this conversation, uh, why don't you lead us in some meditation? Sure. be happy to. So uh, I will first of all say that if you're driving a car right now and listening to this podcast, please don't do this meditation. <laughs> Put it on pause. And if you're um, in the comfort of your home or anywhere else, start by just sitting with conviction in a chair, on the floor, on a cushion, wherever you are. And putting your feet flat on the floor, your arms by your side, or on your lap. And I'll invite you to close your eyes if it feels comfortable for you, or just lower your gaze. Whatever feels right. And as you begin to feel like you're really settling in to this position to meditate, start by taking three slow breaths, maybe long, slow, deep inhale in through the nose and an exhale out gently through the mouth like you're fogging a mirror. And then settle into a natural rhythm of the breath. knowing throughout the practice that you may hear sounds inside of the room that you're in or outdoors. And know that these are not distractions and they're not disruptions. They're simply what's happening around you as you sit and breathe. So, Anchoring yourself in that breath, if you begin to notice that the mind wanders or jumping from thought to thought, just guide the attention and focus it um, on the stomach or chest or wherever you feel the breath most prominently. Where do you feel the breath? Your nostrils, your throat, chest or stomach? So just returning your attention, your awareness, each time that you notice it wanders back to the breath. And simply continuing with this practice of breathing, of noticing Observing the sensation of the breath. Maybe you can sense the tickling 
around the nostrils when you inhale in. And perhaps the quality of your breath on the exhale is a little warmer when it comes out the nostrils. Can you sense that? And if it helps, you can also say to yourself as you're breathing in, breathing in. And as you're breathing out, breathing out. The meditation, as it is said, is in the return. So gently guiding your attention always back. And letting go of expectations or judgments of your practice as you're sitting and breathing. So as you learn to be more comfortable in stillness, connect with the breath, you can feel yourself becoming more grounded. A sense of calmness and peace that you yourself can cultivate. And you can know what it is like to just sit and breathe. So you can close again by taking three long, slow, deep inhales in and exhaling out. Just do three breaths like that. And when you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes if they were closed or widen your gaze wiggling your toes and fingers, coming back to the room or the space that you're in and feeling a greater sense of calm and connected to yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. That was wonderful. Thank you. And thank you for joining me today. If you all would like to learn more about Shelley and the pandemic of love, you can check out www.pandemicoflove, P-A-N-D-E-M-I-C-O-F-L-O-V-E.com. And thank you for everybody who's listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be happy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.